Well, I, uh, I, I did a, as our friend Tasty Meat Pauls would say, I did a regular CFP spray today, kind of like a uh, afternoon spray, if, if you remember that from one of my favorite TV shows. So we'll see what happens. Now, I want to ask uh, you two, when you are submitting yeah. to, to six to 12 months of conferences in the future, what is... What is the decorum that you use as far as like, there's no, if I submit to 15 conferences, there's no fucking way I'm going to commit to all of these. So like, what's your policy for, oh. for not disappointing people? Well, I, I, I could take this one. Cause I think last year I submitted to about 40 uh, meetups and conferences and I presented at about 35 of them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So clearly, my mo is to like uh, don't say no. Um, but you know, <clears throat> um, I, I had the mission, you know, of of needing to uh, get out and and spread the good word, if you will. And uh, you know, as people came back to me, I tried to you know block out my calendar accordingly. And um, I mean, really. I, this year, I'm in a lot more um, selective, I guess. So uh, this year, I haven't done the spray as much. So I, I don't know what the to, to say other than, like, figure out what you really want to speak at. Decide mm-hmm. if you have conflicts. Do you, you know, do you just say, well, I already accepted this one? Or because they're actually, now that I think about it, I did have to uh, hand a couple over to like coworkers where I was like, Oh, you know, I've got a conflict here. I got to go speak at this conference, but you know, tasty meets Paul can talk for me or something like that. Um, so can you do that? Oh, can I, I, the, I'm uh, the, the may, brand name to maybe to I could talks for your coworker. Maybe I could. I mean, I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean last, last year I had to cancel a few things and I was just like, you know, in, in, in the time where they ask you to reply back, I just said, no, I can't make it now. But, uh, you know, mm. I, I don't know if that's if that's good or bad. I, I think I, I I'm worried that I might have pissed off the uh, the DevOps Antwerp people. Did I ever tell the story about about when I spoke at that conference a long time ago? I'll I'll tell it because that's that's what I like to do here. But uh, you know, so back when I was at Red Monk, I went to go speak at uh, DevOps, not DevOps. Get it? Dev DevOps with a two X's. I think that's mm-hmm. French. And I went to go speak in Antwerp, lovely train station there. Love that, that train station. And, uh, I think I spoke twice, once with John Willis and then once on my own. Uh, and, and they paid for me to fly over there, which was the, the, the style with Red Monk. And I, you know, I bundled up having a vacation with my family and then 18 month year old son, as, as you do. And I remember, remember when I was expensing it, cause, you know, I only paid for my ticket. Uh, they got all upset, not based on the amount of money paid, because I remember I had documented, uh, you know, the amount of money paid uh, comparable to other things. But because I had booked this two week trip and I got this nasty email from, you know, uh, I didn't let it color my view of the Belgian people as a whole, because I have always found them to be charming, delightful, friendly people. But I got a little nasty gram from them, which was uh, too bad. But they paid for the expenses. So I've always been a little worried that there's like some secret list in the DevOx world and my name is in there as asshole. But I don't know. I spoke at uh, DevOps, <laughs> DevOps Stays Poland. So, and, I, and they would have accepted me to the Belgium one again. Uh, 
that I said no to. So I, I guess I'm okay, but I, you well, know, I don't want to, I don't want to well, you, 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 do too much to rock the boat of the DevOps. <laughs> but are you, are you, are you or pivotal rather like paying, paying the way this time or is oh, it, yeah, yeah, or is yeah. it like before? No, no, we got, we got, we yeah, got, so I think it's different. I don't know. I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I'd say I, I think it's a totally different category, right? When if you're paying, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you just go to the ones. I just think you tier them out, right? You have your, your tier one, tier two, tier threes, and then try to get to them all. But I think a question for you guys, because you're doing a lot more of this these days than I am, like, like, I, I do. You, I guess how do you assign value? And maybe back to like, you know, you Cote, like how pivotal, you know, think, you know, measures your value. Like, is because there's always this belief that like more conferences are better. Like, in like, you know, even when you're like. And then on the company side, right, like um, vendor side, I, I like this phrase, like conference-driven development. I don't know, Matt Ray, like if you've run into this. Uh, <laughs> I used to with, run a with, team that did that. <laughs> yeah, with your big uh, chef uh, comp coming up. It's like, you know, like, you know, there's all these practices about Agile. Hey, quick plug, go listen to the latest software-defined interviews if you want to hear more about that. But, uh, you know, there's all this talk about, like, how to build software better, but, like, the conference deadlines – do seem yeah. to drive like an immense amount of like software development, planning, marketing, planning. Um, and, you know, it always just comes back to like, we have these conferences and they happen and I, and invariably I go to them or participate in them. And at the end I was like, I don't know, man, I think if we, you know, sometimes we just get too focused on these, ta this one tactic versus like mm. maybe just doing some, like doing a webinar doesn't feel as impactful because you don't have to fly and you don't have to like, there's not all this big production, but sometimes it can reach more people. Hopefully a podcast like this sometimes can reach more people. Um, so I don't know, but I just feel like there is always this emphasis on more conferences, better, bigger conferences and more demos. So I don't know. How do you value that? Okay. Well, I'm, since I submitted and did my CFP spray, I have a lot of, uh, you know, and just to be clear by spray, I mean, sort of like a light mist, not, not something lewd. I don't know what your problem is. If you think it's lewd, you should go see someone about that, but <laughs> Anyhow, uh, yeah, I think, I think the way, uh, there's three, at least the, at least three ways I value a conference. One is if it's sort of like a company conference. So obviously I'm going to go to spring one platform, the most awesome name platform in existence that has ever been. Not even the Babylonians could come <laughs> up with a better conference name than that. Uh, second, uh, there's probably like I'll go to and, and then also as part of that, like, you know, I submitted to VMworld. So I'll go I'll I'll usually submit to, uh, you know, friends of, of pivotal conferences. And and then there's actually four. There's actually four criteria. But this, so the second one is like, let's call it regional. Basically, I want to reach the audience and that could be regional. So like, um, uh, I don't know like conferences in DC, like we have a, we have a good federal practice and, and I know those people and I like them and, or it might be that like in Berlin, we need to reach more people. So I'll try to submit to those conferences. And then also in this category is like, uh, we don't being the size that Pivotal is, which, which is a big company software wise, but you know, we're no IBM or Microsoft, like the the uh, the strategy sort of like doesn't spend a tremendous amount of money on every single country out there. And then even when we do, sometimes I know that they need some additional help. So, for example, uh, today I submitted to a uh, a conference in Sao Paulo and uh, and Krakow because, you know, we we cover those areas, especially Sao Paulo, but like they can always use additional help. And uh, and then there could also be audience like I've been wanting to speak at like 
I think like open group IT SMF and like ITEL types of conferences, right? Like all these stodgy roles <laughs> that like, well, because, because I feel like, you know, we've sort of like saturated all the people who want to hear the good word. They're just like, you got that going on. That's covered. But whoever is still going uh, to those. And, and now you're going to. Uh, yeah. Now, now you're hitting up the people who need to hear the good word. Yeah. Yeah. You got the, uh, you got the, the sort of late majority laggards cl- crowd. Right. And I encounter these people a lot. Uh, and, and also I'm just curious, like, what goes on at these conferences? So, um, so, right. I, th- so that's sort of an audience thing. And then the third thing is, uh, if someone asks me to speak at a conference, I usually do that. And, and, you know, much to my continually bruised ego, that doesn't happen as much as I feel like it should. So that's a bummer, but it's, it is delightful. Oh. And then, uh, the fourth one is sometimes I'm just like, I haven't been there before or like, I like Chicago. <laughs> right. Fuck it. I'll go there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like Jakarta. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I don't know. It kind of comes back to, so I think it sounds like more, you know, in lieu of any other metric. And I think this is most companies like speaking more is better than less. And I don't know, conferences are just a good, like at the end of the year, putting on your MBOs or whatever, whatever you have to submit to your, your manager to show that you did a good job. Like a list of long conferences is always a good thing. Even, but I don't know. I just come back a lot and like, so I find that like, kind of like the middle, the middle tier of conferences, like I think it's almost like you want to go bigger, you want to go small. Like a small conference, I feel like is really valuable because you actually do make connections. It feels like you really can help some, a few people along and making a decision or, you know, learn, learn from them. And then the big conferences, I feel like you do, you kind of have to be there. It's sort of like a networking, um, but like kind of like this middle tier, like not regional, but maybe a little bit bigger. It's like, I don't know. I find that those conferences aren't as valuable it's just like a lot of people kind of just like maybe just what you said like oh let's just get out of the office for the day right and it's like (laughs) it doesn't um it doesn't really lead to much it's just like oh but everyone feels good about it at the end right right and 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 i've got like literally half the side of the planet as my territory and so so when we decide which conferences to submit to it actually has to be places that can fit on our schedule to circle back to. Right. So there's, you know, there's tons of places in like China and Korea and India that hit me up and I'm like, guys, I'd love to, but you know, I'm having a hard enough time covering off on Australia and Singapore and New Zealand, um, that I submitting, you know, I can come give a talk, meet a couple folks, but the problem is like, even if I get, you know, some good leads or conversations out of it, you know, when is the next time I'm going to be in Seoul? Right. You, know, it, you just can't support it, right? You can't like your company <laughs> yeah. just can't sell there yet. So that's like that's yeah, actually yeah. rule one. If you can't sell there, don't go there. I think mm, that would right, be probably rule right. one of conference selection. Uh, and, and I'm sure Pivotal has a lot better coverage, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So they're like, yeah, Krakow, Sao Paulo, yeah, it's just Sincote over there and we'll we'll clean up after him, right? And here it's like Matt send Matt and Matt will clean up after Matt. Damn yeah. <laughs> that's it. Matt will clean up after Matt. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that is, that is a, a criteria, uh, um, that I don't always follow, but, uh, yeah, if one, if, 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 if we don't really sell there very much, then I don't really prioritize going there unless, you know, the exceptions that I make are like, if someone asked me to go speak somewhere, then it's fine. And then two, uh, yeah, like some stuff is just like too difficult to get there for what it's worth. Right. Like, I don't want to, I don't know. In general, it's hard to like justify going to like an, an obscure, hard to reach country 
just to give like a one hour talk. Although I have done that before. I don't know. I think, I think I'm given a lot of latitude to sort of like uh, figure out when it makes sense as, as sort of like, yeah, as sort of like in the evangelist role, like, or whatever people call it nowadays. Like, like part of what you're doing is like, I don't fucking know. You figure it out. You're supposed to go make people like us. And so (laughs) do it. And, and you have a budget of like, you have a budget of like five to 30% of just fucking up, like all advertising. And so like, it's better to get out there and try things Mm -hmm. out. And then plus typically, uh, even, well, not even, but oftentimes when I've gone to like a, a conference that was a, a bust, so to speak, from a business perspective, there's still a recording of a talk that I'm giving, which is great. And so like, if you get a recording out of it, to me, it's almost worth it just to, uh, just to have that. But, uh, yep. Submitting yeah. to conferences. I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think I like the balance that I have because, you know, my job is actually tied to sales. And so I don't have the free reign of a free reign of evangelism to just be like, you know, hopping on a plane, going to, you know, wherever, just because, you know, I actually have to temper it a little bit, which is, I think, a good thing. I mean, I, you know, I've been talking to some folks about, you know, evangelism roles here and there. And, you know, I was like, I actually like having a, a business hook into it. You know, there needs to be, there needs to be some pressure, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, some, no, no. Some no, business no. side responsibility. <laughs> no, for sure. And to do my usual thing of overstating and then backing off of it. Like, I mean, I think that is, I think, I think the key thing there is, is that trust I was talking about of like part of your job. And if, if you're, as I am more or less completely unmanaged, otherwise you have to like manage the more junior evangelists, I guess. But like part of your job is to like know what the business priorities are, what's going on in the field and make that call on your own. And, 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 you know, uh, to clarify, like as far as those conferences that are like busts, like, I think that only happens like one to three times a year for me. Right. Where I'm just like, you know, going home and I'm like, well, that was a dumbass idea. Uh, you know, but I sure did get some cool (laughs) pins. Uh, so like it, it yeah, is, yeah. and, and, and I think, I think, I think the, the, you know, flip, but- the flip side of that to, to your point is part of what you want to do if you go out and speak at a lot of conferences is get a very finely tuned, almost quarterly updated sense of like what markets we're operating in, where people need help with stuff, where you've got a concentration of prospects and customers. I mean, all that kind of stuff that would give you input into prioritizing where you should go and not. And then to repeat it a fourth or fifth right. time, like you still need to take risks of exploring new things and not just going by the book. Mm. Well, my take on the watching all the, the dev uh, evangelists, because I think that's all true, but I think most the dev evangelists or evangelists in general measure their success by going to and speaking to conferences, which makes total sense. But I just always come back to, obviously, you know, we're doing it. I think, Coach, you do a especially good job, right? You obviously publish a lot of podcasts and, you know, you have your own newsletter uh, and things like that. But I don't, I just haven't seen as many other um, evangelists kind of embrace that. Like, you know, I'm going to like, for example, like I'm going to create a newsletter and I'm going to start, you know, generating subscribers. You know, it's going to start with none and it's going to grow over time or, you know, some other digital um, ways to talk to people. I just, it doesn't seem like that, that as a broad statement that that, role is really thinking that way it's mostly like let's get on planes because i just as i see like as i follow a bunch of them on twitter like you always see them talking about 
where they are, they miss the plane, traffic, you know, traveling's hard, <laughs> and then, you know, and it kind of cycles around. And it's like, you know, it would be interesting, and there would be like, here's a write-up of the conference, or like, hey, subscribe to this newsletter. You know, it's a way to like start to engage that. But I don't, I don't think people think yeah. of the role that way. And I don't think, uh, and I don't think people are encouraging those people to do it. So I guess I'll encourage everybody. Like that would be cool, right? As you travel, like it'd be cool to like kind of have some other regular update from a lot of these guys that seem really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know. I, I mean, so, so yes. I think, I think uh, everyone reverts to the uh, the salesperson mentality of like, I'm going to make you money, not fucking write or status report, which which is nice. That's delightful for them, uh, but. You know, also contrary to that, uh, I remember, I remember, uh, our, our friend Bridget had a tweet the other day where she had just been in a meeting with, uh, her boss, which I guess is Ashley over at Microsoft. And she was like, I reviewed my Trello boards and all my spreadsheets. And I was like, holy shit, some people are organized. So maybe, uh, maybe as Microsoft <laughs> is, is slurping up all the, the, uh, the evangelists, they, they're uh, actually running shit in a uh, organized way. Instead of relying on the uh, the keen self managerial intelligence of of the people that they have, and and then just more in this obscure topic uh, to uh, sort of niche it out. I mean, I think I think I think to you know to uh, add some color, as they say, to uh, your comment about people traveling around. I think I think yeah, you have to figure out like, am I going to make a lot of content, or am I going to just show up at a lot of places? And determining that, I think, is like the difference between almost like brand building, like like building uh, your brand in a new space. And like, and then it kind of shifts after you've built your brand and sort of gotten permission to go talk about yourself and hustle your wares. You can more like show up and be like, you should buy Pivotal stuff uh, and uh, or you should buy whatever <laughs> stuff. And then and then I think the third stage is just sort of like like maintenance of what you're doing, right? So now we need a lot of content and we need a lot of ideas and you should definitely go to conferences, but it's not like you need to go to every single damn conference or let's hire some people who do go to every single damn conference uh, to do things. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of brands, this is a good time since we forgot at the beginning, I should say I forgot to tell you about uh, who's, who's bringing this episode to you, who's sponsoring it. And that's our, our, as always, good friends at uh, at Datadog. Now, now here you are. You're uh, you're globe trotting around the world, trying to hustle up this this new service, this new piece of software that that you're using to all these enterprises. And you meet with the enterprises, and you're like, I got I got some uh, some immutable gobbledygook with uh, with your pipeline and and your digital immutability or whatever it is you're you're doing. Maybe you got the you got the API economy or something. And people are bewildered with what you're talking to them about. But you know what these 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 buyers, these enterprises need? They need a good way to like monitor and uh, manage and even do some uh, some sort of like prediction about how their services are doing. And that's where, where that's where Datadog comes in. So they're like, you know, they'll do your log management. They'll they'll pull over uh, over 200 different technologies, including one of our favorites, Chef, but also Docker and AWS, all the great clouds, all your various middleware. They'll give you a sense of what's going on there and let you tune how you're, uh, how you're observing even the unobservable things and, uh, make sure that, that those, that you're running things in a, a correct, resilient, 
fantastic way. Now, they also have these dashboards. It's not just like one of those single user things where you got to pass around a password and, and a bunch of uh, and one user names. It's very annoying. Uh, but because it's built by people who understand how to use this and, and you know, the, the engineers who are building it, engineers for engineers and all that, uh, you can actually have multiple logins. It has a very nice looking interface. And so they have a special offer for our listeners. Now, you might have heard about this offer before and you're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait till Easter to get one of those nice, soft, purplish t-shirts because that will allow me to camouflage myself amongst all the Easter colors. But you should just do it now. No need to wait. What you can do is all you need to do is go to, uh, what's the new URL, Brandon? Uh, we don't have the new URL yet, so it's going to just go to uh, go to the show notes. <laughs> That's because, right. Uh, we've updated the URL. So go to the show notes and click on uh, the Datadog URL. And there, right, Kote, you were about to say, you can... Yes. Uh, register for an account, make some dashboards. That's right. When, if you once, do all that, you can get a, a, a lovely t-shirt. Once you make one dashboard and you got to go, we'll tell you why we don't just have a simple URL for you. It's, it's a funny story, uh, but go look at the show notes and you can probably open that up in overcast as well. If you're, or wherever the notes, but if you go to software defined talk.com slash one twenty five. Uh, you go, you go set up an account, create a dashboard and they'll send you a free t-shirt. And I, I wear this t-shirt frequently today. I'm wearing my software defined t-shirt, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. I mean, I guess it is here, but it's not there. Uh, and, uh, but this one's really nice. It's a good t-shirt. So, you know, if you're interested in monitoring things, you got, you know, you're monitoring your logs, you want to collaborate around making sure your, your IT keeps up and running. You should try out Datadog. There's uh there's other things that do it, but they're they're pretty damn good as well, and and you can do a free trial to get them, and you get a T-shirt out of the deal. It's almost like uh you know working for fun instead of profit. But uh, this week, uh, as as most weeks, I think I think they have what I'm what I'm going to start calling the uh, the data dog treat of the week. And what's that treat that they've brought for us, Brandon? It is uh, log management. They've uh, officially made their log management uh, uh, functionality generally available. So, you know, it's all part of their unified log management solution where the three pillars, have you ever noticed it's always three pillars of observability, which is uh, the ability to see uh, the metrics, the logs, and then actually request a trace of what's happening in your system. So, Really, there's no excuse now. You should never have anything go down ever again because uh, from the log, you can quickly uh, pivot and look at the metrics and then actually look at the trace of the actual specific error. So go uh, sign up, give it a shot. Um, they're really happy with their log management. It looks really cool. So try it, tell them if you love it and uh, get a free t-shirt. So so the reason we don't have the simple URL, I'll be very brief, is uh, apparently it got listed on some site called like free shit for developers. Uh, and, and it was, a, it was a good uh, roundup of various places you could go to get free things. And so, you know, what with the tracking of your, uh, CTAs and your ROIs and your growth hacking, you want to make sure that the, the URLs are good and not just, uh, distributed out like that, I, I suppose. Now, speaking, speaking of SaaS based monitoring systems, as Brandon sort of, uh, mentioned earlier, this week's software defined interview is, uh, with Walter Baldwell who we all used to work with. He used to be one of these fancy people who had a round table in his office, really big wheel over at the BMC. Uh, and, and it's, it's a good interview uh, where Brandon one goes over the, the sort of history of, of Walter doing agile and they relive some of the glory days of, uh, of doing uh, buying book monitoring and then kind of delve into how, uh, how 
agile is sort of being used and consulted around in uh, in companies. I like the part, Brandon, where you're like, now a typical consultant just comes in and tells you what time it is by looking at your watch. But I'm sure you do something much more complicated. And Walter's like, nope, just telling people what time it is all day long. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's a very honest consultant. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the honesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So you should check that out. You go over to uh, softwaredefinedinterviews.com and there there's some other good interviews over there. Next week I'm going to post one uh where where in my uh, oscillating way, I uh, interview is perhaps the wrong word, but I, but as 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 I think also Tasty Meat Paul's pointed out, I do my standard thing of talking for a long time and asking my guests, does that make sense? Uh, on the topic of AI and machine learning and things like that. Uh, so, so that'll be fun. So uh, speaking of I look forward to yeah, it, it, it is something. It, yeah, it's fun. It, it's there in your podcast hole. You can listen to it anytime. So uh, we got sort of like a little grab bag of things to go over. I think, I think the first one, uh, because I've been playing with uh, putting together a presentation or, or an article or something about this. So over, over in red monk land, Everyone's favorite, Stephen O'Grady, he wrote a uh, a little piece he called the Kubernetes lesson, which is basically like, hey, Kubernetes is a success, you know, using the, the usual red monk sources for that, which which are fine. And uh, I think I think I don't remember the wording. You, If I was like a real professional, I would have written this quote down. But he was basically like, you know, developers helped lead uh, the rollout of this and, and the success of it. And that in itself is not uh, so groundbreaking. I mean, it's sort of groundbreaking if you're one of these people at the uh, the old conferences we were talking about earlier, I guess. But what, what was what was mildly, at least for me, infuriating was there was an ensuing sort of like nerd fight over in Twitter, where people were all like, developers have nothing to do with it. It's all operators. And, uh, and much to his credit, uh, you know, O'Grady came in and he was like, all right, you fucking nerds, although he didn't say that. He was like, what I should have said is developers helped with this and sort of, you know, cleared the way for it. And it, it is like, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know if, 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 uh, I've, I've, I've forgotten this or like rewritten the history, but, but I feel like developers actually were extremely important for like the success of Kubernetes. Like, I don't think left to their own devices, like operations people would have given a fuck. I think they would have been happy to just keep spinning up <laughs> VMware. They, they were, yeah. I, I I think ops folks are probably more interested in you know maintaining SLAs, which means stop moving. Yeah. Um. So you know, there's uh, you know, in the, on the Twitter thread, you know, there's like, oh no, this is a DevOps thing, and you know, we, but then a couple folks drop in and say like, hey, you know, actually nobody really talked about day two up front. Um, a lot of this was just how do we get stuff out faster? And, you know, the day two stuff is, is definitely there. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's a nice article. You know, I, th I think there's, there's a lot of uh, retrospective or introspection going on right now. Like, whew, it's been a, you know, exciting 2017 and 2018 is off to a, a flash. And uh, so this Kubernetes thing, this is how we do things now, right? <laughs> right. I do think the personalities involved were, were sort of interesting because, you know, when I read um, O'Grady's piece, right, like for a long time, and obviously, Kote, you can comment on this extensively, is that, I, you know, I feel like the narrative, the Red Monk narrative, if, if I was to summarize it, was, especially when the company first got started, was 
people are underestimating the power of developers, right? So I think that's sort of the narrative that's been pushed for a while, and you know, makes sense. It's it's you know valid, but. But as I started reading this, I was like, oh, I know what, you know, you can kind of predict what O'Grady's conclusion was going to be, right? So I think his perspective is always like, hey, developers are, are more important than a lot of people think, right? And so you have that kind of like point of view coming into this. And then I think you have um, Kelsey Hightower, right? Like, I think he 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 like he does a good job at like writing, like I would call like very polite contra uh, contrarian tweets, right? And it's like, and I, I think, you know, it sort of you know, usually creates like a little mini, I don't know, like argument, but it creates like some traffic on Twitter. So it's kind of interesting to watch these personalities play out because I don't really, you know, there's not really much arguing here. It's more just the very nuanced thing, but it's also mm -hmm. there's kind of an agenda on both sides, right? That people are at least preconceived notions going into it. Because um, I kind of think, you know, like I'll just come in in the middle and be like, well, this is a, it's all a lot more complicated, right? I think, you know, as, as Saying Kubernetes was successful for any one reason, right? Of course, as we know, is foolish. And I think there's like a lot of situational things that happen, the container movement, but then also, you know, Google pushing in. There's some people outside of, you know, the development communities that have their own agenda that are pushing it. So you just like it's, a, I think, a much more, you know, gray subject than it is any one thing. Um, but it was, it was kind of fun to watch, right? It's kind of fun to watch the people kind of argue it out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think to your point, I think usually, uh, when Red Monk says developers, you know, they, they oftentimes mean literally developers, but they also mean practitioners because that was the original uh, framing back in the mid 2000s was like the CIO was the last to know or, or whatever. Right. And, and the I don't know if they use this case anymore, this example anymore, but their example was always like I went and talked to a, a CIO at a big bank and they were like, no one here uses instant messaging. And then you go talk to every employee and they're they're sending IMs to each other like making fun of the CIO to say that while they're in the meeting. And so the, it's just more of a bottoms up approach, but, but yeah. And, and I forget if it was in that, uh, that sort of like, uh, you know, two drunks fighting uh, thread over there, but th someone did raise a big point that kind of to the, what Matt Ray was saying is that probably what happened is that quote unquote developers uh, were using Docker and containers because it was really fast to get things up and running and then finally, the ops people were like, ah, we got to like run this shit somewhere. And I don't have the technical knowledge to know this, but I'm assuming the Docker Swarm stuff didn't win for some reason. I don't know if that's because Kubernetes was better or Swarm was worse or, or, or what the deal was, if their go-to-market wasn't cool enough. But so everyone's got these containers and then you got to actually run it somewhere. And Somewhat coincidentally, there's, uh, you know, Kubernetes has been boiling out there and, uh, and then, and then, you know, and then just released with another release this week, poor old Mesosphere seems to lose out in, in that big fight there for some reason. But it is like, I, I guess now operations people are, are interested in Kubernetes stuff, but it would be, it would be hard press. I don't, I don't know. This is a weird history back there, uh, of, of regarding it, but. Maybe someone can sort it out for us. They can go uh, do some analysis. I was thinking what you should do is go look at, um, this would be a very red monk way of analyzing things. You should go over and analyze like what all the stars and, and I don't know what, how the fuck GitHub works, but all, all the, the social gestures of, of stuff on GitHub are about Kubernetes and see if there were more operations or dev people. But then I realized that was really stupid. 
because of course it's all developers. It's it's not like uh, mm-hmm. your your ITIL v three people. I, I do there. think we're all developers now. Uh, <laughs> That's right, we're yeah. all developers. I do think you know to give you a, a different Red Monk analytical approach would be maybe to use like a little um, Google query kind of data, right, and look look back mm. historically. So I think everybody would. I think you're 100 percent right on containers. Clearly driven by developers, clearly solves a huge pain point. I think at that moment, though, I think outside of the development technical community, I think there was a lot of people whose like you know, um, light bulbs went off, like, "Whoa, this could be like another VMware situation, right? Like, what's going to orchestrate this? What's going to like? What is all this software going to do? And how do we do it?" And I think a lot of people at that moment, whether it be Docker or uh, Google or Kubernetes or you know even Amazon writing their own right container service, right? Like, we're we're trying to figure that out. So it'd be interesting to go back and say as these things were launched. Like, what did the Google traffic start to look like? What were people searching? When did press releases come out? Because that would start to give you like kind of a narrative, like who was pushing what and what kind of had, you know, bottoms up appeal and what was like being forced on top down. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just part of my CFP spray was putting together a talk finally. Uh, uh, and you can imagine which letters I chose that uh, called like Kubernetes for the confused to try to go over like uh, how to think about <laughs> it and, and choose it and make your strategy for it and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, like all good CFPs, I followed the rule that you should uh, you should be the CFP that you want to one day make a talk out of in the future, should your talk be accepted. So I'm not really sure what that <laughs> advice is, but it, it will be found. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I, like earlier, we mentioned conference-driven development, right? I'm, you know, used to do that, and and there's also the idea of you know conference-driven CFPs where mm. I don't have a talk. I'd like to see this some point. Maybe this will make me, you know, get off my my uh, my can and and get something done in time for you know name the conference and <clears throat> um. There, there's definitely a lot of that going on. I think uh, I've got a, like, for example, I have a talk next week at, uh, next week? I don't even know when it is. Uh, two weeks. Uh, two weeks I'm giving a talk at a, a event in Melbourne on uh, Habitat with Kubernetes and with um, Docker. And mm. I have a lot of development to do. <laughs> you better get Not cracking. Just slides, but I actually have to do all the development. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's definitely a lot of that going on. But but you know, one of the side effects of of conference driven development is <clears throat> the code's not usually like production quality. So yes. um, little pro tip to any of you like with stars in your eyes after you watch some amazing demo on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean that that should be your first question. Well, definitely, your first question I've, after any demo should be does it work with Active Directory? Did you just demonstrate Active Directory? And uh, if the answer is no, just right. no good. Right. It's invalid. Right. Is the data encrypted that you just showed me in your uh, data store? Yes. Well, the other one, I don't know Cote if you're going to do it, but I I don't I think your conversation with uh Christopher on Istio like you know, I don't know. So hopefully someone's doing everything you need to know about Kubernetes and Istio. I'm sure that's being done quite a bit, but uh, that was very insightful. And I do mm. think, you know, and it's funny to talk about, you know, this little argument going on with Kubernetes, like after you listen to the Istio conversation and then, you know, Matt Ray and I even had a conversation on the mesh, right. The, talking about the problem. Um, you kind of realize like how much work there really is left 
not around Kubernetes, but around all the other technologies that really Kubernetes needs to yeah. to uh, use to actually become production, right? You kind of like get a sense of like this war or whatever, this the, this effort has just begun, right? I mean, like Istio is his own massive thing, and I'm sure there's some other projects that'll be built out that are going to add a lot of functionality that people need for to actually run this in a, you know in a real world production setting. Yeah, yeah. Now that, that you take that uh, ninety or so minute interview and uh, you add in a few like self-effacing jokes about myself and making fun of you know whoever is in front of me, and you basically have the talk I'm going to give. But it's it it that is that is like I think I think the thing you realize with uh, with Kubernetes and the questions they ask, and then when you talk with someone who actually knows what they're talking about, and it's like, oh, I see. This thing's wonderful, but it requires a lot of parts. Like we've been, yeah. uh, I mean, this is always my shtick, right? Like for the past two to three years, we've been talking about like how awesome lumber is. Fucking love lumber. And uh, it's starting to rain. So someone should build a house. Like, And, and there's like, uh, that's an over-exaggeration, of course. But there is, there's a whole lot more going on than just the, uh, the, the, the core stuff. And uh you know, I think it would be helpful to tell people and also be helpful for like meetings I'll be in. Uh, I don't know if it'll be in Krakow or not, but wherever, wherever we care about meetings will be in to be able to explain, um, you know, how you should think about using this stuff. It's like, it's like as, as a template for that, right? The upshot after, uh, as John Willis would say, around 10 years of DevOps, the answer to that is like, it's all culture and process. And so there's got to be some, uh, trite little ants, trite. What's a good version of trite? Some concise, spot on trenchant uh version of that about kubernetes that uh is the kind of like helpfully counterintuitive thing i hope i hope i hope for everyone's sake that kubernetes isn't just all about culture too because that's just going to be a big fucking letdown if it's if it's not actually about the technology <laughs> uh kubernetes no. that that talk right hey yeah. oh wow culture netes wow good one matt ray is that is that, gonna, uh, is that german organize into pods Ooh, hey, slow down, slow down. You're going to have to put your ideas in a registry. Of course, of course, you're going to have to bring your own registry because that is not going to be part of the core thing. Because that's not part uh, of the project. For right? some inexplicable and, and reason. Scheduler. Uh-huh. And, oh. Man, yeah. Uh, and and if, if service mesh of culture, if we start to throw too many of these ideas back b- between each other and we get exhausted, you're also going to need some additional stuff that you bring to manage that. Whew, man, oh, dear. that was that, car and culture. That was a deep, deep hole of nonsense right there. Well, uh, you know, another thing that came <laughs> up to uh, to to uh, this one's not so much to complain about, but. I think I think the uh, here here's here's a theory that I in no way have to prove. So so it'd be interesting to think about it. Like so, there was a piece written, and and I forget. I think it was over on uh, on Geekwire. Someone needs to go over to those Geekwire people and ask them like what they're up to, because because it all seems good. Like I don't know if they're owned by some PE firm or whatever, but they're like paying for some actual good journalism, which which is uh, you know fucking bonkers. Uh, as we know in the tech world, but they had a piece then it wasn't even written. Well, let me make sure I verify that before I say this. I don't think it was even, it wasn't even written by Matt Assay. And it was basically like, uh, should all of these companies be paying more to open source or are they ripping off open source people? And for some reason they put a hyphen in open source. So we should write the copy editors over there at Geekwire. But um, anyways, 
you know, you can read through it and it's the usual thing of like, uh, no one's paying for this open source stuff. And is that ethically wrong? And, and as I was reading it, I was thinking like, not to, well, to invoke them again, I'm pretty sure Redmonk could do this, but I'm pretty sure that most everyone who writes and commits to open source projects is on the payroll of these big companies who use it. Like you would be, I mean, there's probably some little weird uh, Apache projects out there, but you'd be pretty hard pressed to like find an open source project that's just like, you know, how many pounds was it? Your 400 pound hacker on a bed who's uh, working on it in yeah. the basement. Like, I think, uh, I think we're sort of set with uh, profit-driven or organizations funding open source through uh, through paying people for it. Well, I mean, you definitely still have like customers and users providing code, but usually not large features. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I mean is like, I mean, like, like, I mean, if you look at like, uh, let's say, Chef. Cloud Foundry, numerous things IBM uses, like Intel with Linux, like all of these things. Like there are companies who like pay people a lot of money to be like core contributors and contribute to the code and things like that. Now, I'm sure if you were to do get get, get some sort of like uh, you know McKinsey summer interns in, or Bain would probably do this work. You get some Bain interns in, and they're like, "Is open source being ripped off?" they would show that there was a uh, perhaps a surplus of value in open source that was not being paid for by vendors and companies that use them. But I don't know. I don't know what the break well, point and, of freaking that, out about And that's that why, is. yeah. And that's, that's why open source is not a business model, right? It's, it's a tactic and you have to figure out how you leverage, you know, the fact that your code is everywhere and ubiquitous into a business model that hooks onto, you know, having this boost in marketing. Because that's what it is. It's you have an in, you know, a, a pre-built in to these organizations where you know they're using your software. They somehow or another have come to, to depend on it, and somebody, you know, if it's a pure open source play, um, you know, they're like, well, we need some support. But you know, the pure open source play is one of the hardest ways to go because as uh, as these big cloud people have shown, you know. They're happy to take your open source and run it, you know, cost effectively and and cheaper than than you know your little uh, little two hundred person startup can. So mm-hmm. uh, why would you pay them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I think it is. I get. I guess the 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 question being pondered here. I'm no I'm no economist, even though I listen to a couple podcasts. So I feel like, and you know, every now and then, accidentally, I'll hear like those uh, those NPR economist things before I realize i can turn them off or not economists but economy ones and they have 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 y'all maybe y'all not anymore but you remember they have this local one on kut that has these two like turns out psychology professors from ut and it's like two guys in your head oh man that one is yeah yeah so nauseous it turns out that like when people are dancing with each other actually what they're doing is transmuting how to properly cook bacon and we've studied that with MRIs. And I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing. But uh, anyhow. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, oh, you know, so I guess the question here is like, are there, are there dogs incessantly barking in the background? Or are there, are there a lot of free riders in the open source world? One, and I think the answer to that is probably yes. 
And but then two, like, do we care? And I think that do we care thing never really gets answered. Like, it's very rare to, uh, you know, they always invoke uh, that one Larry Ellison quote where he's like, I'm Larry Ellison and we'll just use that shit for free. Shit, dog. Uh, but there's really not that many like crises that seem to happen because like there was free riders in the open source world. And, and I don't know. I mean, there, there is a, there, yeah, there, there is a crisis among, <clears throat> um, probably in VC and startup land where, you know, realistically, if you want software to succeed, it probably has to be open source. It's hard to do commercial in a niche product because someone will come along or unless it's a really niche product because someone will have an open source alternative. Then the question is, well, who's going to pay for that open source? You know, is it just going to be something that spins out of a big company, you know, like a, a Twitter or, a, you know, Capital One or something like that? Or is there going to be a little company that, you know, takes some VC and tries to build a business around it? And, well, building a business around it keeps getting harder, right? Yeah. So I, that, I think that's and, what they, they're kind of getting at is, is it's harder yeah. than ever to do open source businesses because everyone understands that now. Yeah, and 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 I guess, I guess I guess a reoccurring crisis that happens is uh, uh, there was an early early on some open source community existed, and there were all these people who were like just having fun and contributing stuff, and then money gets involved, and like all sorts of hijinks ensue, and like you know things get appropriated and reclassified, and so so every now and then there is sort of like early expectations that there will basically not be a commercial enterprise. Uh, get dashed somehow. And, um, I don't know. That'll happen. I mean, you know, to, 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 I haven't figured out what a counterfactual is, but I think it's something like the following. Like, on the other hand, let's say you were doing a closed source thing, you'll have even more screwing over of early participants than happens in a commercially driven closed source thing. So it's really a question of just like, you know, uh, how pure do you think humanity is? And if you think humanity has the uh, potential to be pure all the time, a hundred percent of the time across all, all data points, then I guess open source is kind of a disappointment, but uh, you know, you're sort of a very special enlightened person. If, if that's how you approach the world, I guess. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> that's I would be interested though. I think Matt, right. You said something. You said something really interesting there about um, you know being successful, you've got to be open source. But it would be interesting because I was listening to a podcast the other day around like some private equity guys talking about buying software companies, and they, you know, their theory was like uh, a software company that maybe has like ten to twenty million dollars in revenue, something that won't ever become public, but has an established customer base and is throwing off either maintenance or subscriptions is incredibly valuable, right? Because they've usually created like healthcare. Uh, software or like some like really niche manufacturing thing that that isn't going to a, uh, attract like a behemoth uh, into the space, right? To like build it, right? And, and obviously these are almost always, I assume, proprietary ones. So it'd be kind of interesting back to like, you know, a survey RedMuck will never do, but like how much code really that is written today really is in open source projects versus kind of these like small projects solving like very niche <laughs> problems that right. um, that never attract the attention of like a Facebook or an Amazon or um, well, the, the, and it feels like yeah. it's probably pretty big, right? It's just, we just have no well, idea how big that definitely, is. Definitely, definitely. And, and it, it can't be, Redmuck can't do that. The people who can do that are like your Perforce, your GitHub Enterprise, and you know your Atlassian, where they know what's happening in the enterprise and they have a an idea how much code is being committed behind the firewall. 
right? If you're just scraping GitHub, yeah, every, the world is open source. And, you know, if you're in infrastructure and operations and stuff, yeah, the world is open source. But, you know, who knows what's happening in those ecosystems that we don't see, right? Because, yeah. they're you know, by, by definition, they're private. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree, and it, like I said, I think you're totally right. The GitHub, you know, a GitHub um, public and a GitHub private kind of like uh, study would be pretty fascinating. I don't know, probably GitHub would no no reason they should ever do that, and probably people wouldn't want them to do it for some lots of reasons, but it could be really revealing, right? Because I just I think open source has talked about it a lot just because it's you know it's it's by by default it's always public it's always something to talk about but no one's just talking about like oh look at all these guys they just wrote all these custom programs and what we think of as small solutions but there's like actually millions of them right and it's you know it's a thriving ecosystem out there that we just don't have like a dark pool right like a dark pool of money there's like a dark pool of source code we just don't see and we don't really know what's happening out <laughs> yeah. there well and it's it's always been there Right. It's yeah. not like, you know, this is a new phenomenon. Like, oh, no, people are writing code in private now. It's like, no, actually, most of it's always been private. Now yeah. people have a platform to share. And, you know, if you're doing a wide scale play that you're trying to attract developers and operators into, probably has to be open source. But the key there is, like, if you're trying to attract developers and operators, if you're going after and users, they don't care if it's open source. Yeah. Well, I think the days, maybe the shortcut to solution to, or the summary of all these articles is really the days of selling tooling of any kind directly to developers and operations people are for it's the most hard. part over. You're not going <laughs> to sell them tooling and then charge them 20% a year maintenance for the next 50 years. Like that business is probably gone. You either have to like solve a business problem yeah. Or host, host a solution, you know, some kind of software as a service solution to provide that functionality. But like, yeah, most people are going to want to download and you know utilize the tool themselves because there's just so many of them at this point. Yeah, it, it's harder than ever to be, you know, a Borland or an IntelliJ. <laughs> Borland. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to look at IntelliJ because they they uh, I'm always surprised they still exist, but. Uh... They they seem like an okay business, but but uh, you know you know just as 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 my addition before we get to uh, our 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 own self hype and then recommendations and then close out like I think uh, you know Brandon you hit on like a my my with the smoothie one of the smoothies I would make out of a lot of what you're saying is one there is like this this category of almost vertical and industry specific software applications that no one and by that i mean as generalists in the tech world ever pays attention to and you're reminding me of uh i have a uh an old dell coworker who he worked for a little while at this company that basically sold i don't know what it was like software for lawyers to use that that was a, like a lot more than just like a cms system it like was much more involved in doing legal stuff and and he was telling me the the market and they were basically like three people, three companies that sold into this relatively tiny market. And uh, like some PE got involved and basically consolidated two of them and then wins the entire market, uh, which which is kind of interesting. And so like, you know, depending on now, this gets to the old problem of like uh, opportunity cost of investing, right? Like if if do I want to like gamble on getting a 10% return or, or try to get a 300% return? And how do I risk that out in some sort of spreadsheet but 
there probably is like a fair amount of just like steady money to be made in these companies, even if you are just selling support that just sort of like churn out cash on a reliable basis and don't really grow past a certain point. And as an example, like I'm always curious about Susi, Suse, however you say it, because, you know, they've been private. I forget who owns them now. It's whoever owns. Uh... Microfocus. Yeah. Do they own them? I, I forget if they got spun out on I their own it's... thing or something, but. At one point, they were owned by like one of the three normal PE firms. Right, atta- who yeah, like Attachmate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Attachmate was owned by someone else. Anyways, uh, you know, uh, is Suse going to become like a billion dollar company or are they just always going to hover around like 200 to 500 million, but like have a reliable profit that just turns cash out that you can do something with? And, and I guess is a frequent complaint of mine, right? Like those. Those mid-sized software companies, they don't always seem to have uh, a place to go. <laughs> they're, they're always pressured to either like go big or go home, whereas like they, eventually they need to figure out just being cool at that, uh, that sort of level. And, and then also, I mean, wrapping up the, uh, the smoothie, like, uh, yeah, I mean, open source, open source could operate in that market. Like maybe, uh, I haven't looked at someone like a Pentaho or a, sugar CRM in a long time, but yeah, there is like, once you hit a ceiling of just selling support, maybe you have to be one of these little companies and just optimize on spitting out cash. But then, but then that probably doesn't work uh, as a long-term business strategy because of people wanting to do other things with your company. Who knows? Well, uh, yeah. And as we see like the life of companies, public companies getting shorter and shorter, it's like, you know, these private companies just kind of chug along in their niche, right? Yeah. So I think that as a reoccurring theme, I think there's still something to be said for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like another one that would be interesting to look at would be um, Ingress, which like bought up pervasive and they of course have the Ingress database. Speaking of Borland, I think Borland maybe owned Ingress at some point, right? Like who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, they're another like, uh, what did they used to call these roll up? They're another like roll up of, of a bunch of like older, small things uh, that's that have gone private. And if you look in the uh, at least when you used to look in like the ETL market, like there was a similar uh, group of these like reliable sort of older software companies that had like reached the ceiling and they get they get rolled up into something. And I think uh, what's the name of the big the big uh, the one that's got the big ASB Tibco? I think they're private, too. And they're they're like one of these companies that like it's be interesting i think they could be or have been rolled up into something so so who knows that 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 that, that sort of like yeah. mid mid part of vendors of tech vendors is always fascinating because it's and if only because as brandon was saying people don't talk about it that much and by nature of being private like it's very hidden <laughs> i guess it's right there in the name yeah but you don't get a lot of insight into what's uh, going on there well, 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 just I a mean, couple things to let people, uh, follow, if they're interested in this topic, follow up more. And there's this company, I listened to this interview with the founder of a company called Terra Holdings, which is, their thesis is very simple. They want to apply like a value-based discipline of investing similar to Warren Buffett, but for software companies. And what they basically say is mm. they want to roll up companies that are in that in that market between 10 and $30 million. But they explicitly kind of say they don't want to come in and then like fire everybody. What they want is like a company that's like 10 years old, but the founder probably wants some li- liquidity because they're 
getting ready to retire, um, but they generally want to operate the company in the same way. And then, yeah. you know, much like Warren Buffett kind of figured out that you could, you know, by taking insurance premiums and reinvesting them, it gives you this incredible cash flow, right? And it lets you grow a yeah. company. And they, they have figured out that, like, if the company fits that right model, that they uh, can take the software maintenance is essentially the float, right? So they just kind yeah. of continually repeat the pattern, um, but they kind of have the pitch of they do it in a, like a kinder, gentler way versus like a, a traditional PE firm will just come in and cut costs. So I think it's really interesting. And one one little fun fact I learned out of that, listening to that was evidently like the uh, the business is le- least likely to go out of business. So to, you know, to fail for some reason is a dentist's office. Like some like <laughs> a dentist's office has like a 97% success rate. And then they said, uh, and then he kind of equated this to dental software. I guess there's like or dental management software. There's like three vendors and they just kind of said like, once, you know, the software is in a dentist office and the dentist office is probably going to be around for like 30 years, if not longer, that the, the, the switching cost for a dentist is so high. Like, sure, maybe they could save five or 10% if they switch, but are they incented to do it? When mm. would they want to do it? So they have this tremendous pricing power to just, you know, inch up maintenance, you know, a couple percent a year. And it, and when you think about it, you're like, you're right. Like if everyone here has been to a dentist office, I hope. Right. And, you know, and when you're there, you're like, you don't think this, like a salesman isn't going to show up to the dentist office on Friday be like, I can save you 10%. Let's just rip (laughs) all this out and start over. It's like, no, I'm going to go play golf on Friday and I'm just going to fill cavities the rest of the week. So when you start (laughs) to think about the value of like, I mean, so I always think that my, what I left that was like, wow, he, that's a really insightful thing. It's like, that's not just sticky software. Like that's software that will never, ever die. Right. Yeah. And that's right. And it's going right. to throw off that money. And, it was interesting to think about it. And, and, and sure as hell, there's no 400 pound hacker in his bed writing dental <laughs> software. <laughs> and that's, that's the truth. And, 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 and the tangent to that is, is there's no one in hell I would trust that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I guess, I guess that's a good test. Is you probably don't want your dentist running Kubernetes. I'll, I'll put that as the first slide in my presentation. <laughs> no, no. <sighs> uh, well, uh, so you know, we spoke of conferences a lot earlier. Uh, we'll be at several conferences, Brandon. You, I'm going to be out of town for most of this, but you're going to be at South by Southwest, right? What do you have? Have you have you other than giving out stickers? to dedicated fans who, uh, who may show up. Do you got, you got any plans? Have you made anything up? Um, I'm going to try to go to various sessions. It's, mm. it's a pretty, uh, you know, kind of back to our, uh, Converse, conference discussion like it's a pretty wide array of topics so i, I don't know if i'm going to go to the right sessions but there's like everything from like religion and government to uh like you know how to code and javascript so mm. it's just all over the place i am also going to try to see uh a couple podcasts recorded just to see how the guys at Vox oh Media, that's a good idea uh several of them are going to be doing live recordings i, I hear uh, i hear they're recording. taking over i hear they're taking over the belmont and not only can you see ezra klein interview someone but also uh kara swisher from recode decode will be interviewing someone at the belmont they're at the belmont yes yes and they um they have a, a horrible url they didn't like they're not like us where it's like listen it's too complicated just go to the show notes or go to datadog.com uh, and just sign up but uh yeah so i'll be doing that and uh of course if you see me flag me down I'll, i'm sure i'll have a software defined talk t-shirt on and i've given out sent out a bunch of stickers this week so E- email us at stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. 
think I sent one off to somewhere in uh, the UK, and then I sent one to Leander, which is like, oh, I don't know, maybe three miles from <laughs> where I'm sitting. So, you know, we're, we are, I am. I am clearly sending stickers all over the world. That's right. I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully, to meet some listeners as well. From from Leander to obscure locations in the United Kingdom, we're worldwide. <laughs> At least as you we go are. east, I, I think you, you you might have flipped that. Yeah, from the United Kingdom <laughs> to obscure locations outside Austin. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, yeah. uh, and and then uh, Matt Ray, you're going to be somewhere March 22nd and 23rd over in Melbourne. And then, and then yep. you already mentioned, yep, yep. you already mentioned you'll be at DevOps Days Jakarta. Now I will also be there. This is you know a good what? example of someone who asked me to go speak at a conference, but then it also turned out that it was good regionally. So, uh, I'll, I'll be over there with Matt Ray. Hopefully we'll arrange at least a live recording in the hallway between the two of us. I'm not sure what be kind exciting. of beverage you would have there, if it's a tea or a coffee situation or whatever, but, but we'll have to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Being in Indonesia. Probably not beers. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. And then uh, oh, over over in May, I'll be at the uh, the register, rather the parent company of the register. They have a, a conference called Continuous Life Cycle over there in London. And then, of course, there's ChefCon in May. And we'll see how the CFP spray goes if I end up speaking anywhere else. So uh, j- just as another reminder, uh, if you haven't gotten this hype enough, you should go uh, check out our Software Defined Interviews podcast. You can probably guess the URL or you can just look it up. And we got a great vibrant Slack channel where people have been talking about a lot of things. And we put uh, links to, to um, I don't know, to plan for, to talk about in the next episode and things like that. Now, I haven't sent our newsletter out in two weeks. And maybe this week is going to be the big week. I'm, 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 I'm going to try not to weigh it down with everything from, two, from three weeks. But you can also subscribe to the newsletter that we have. And uh, we now have a 20% discount code for our T-shirts. If you go over to softwaredefinedtalk.com and uh, you click on T-shirts, you can use the code SDTFSG and you can get 20% off of them because uh, apparently people thought they were too expensive to buy otherwise. So now you get 20% off. It's not quite a quarter, but it should be good enough. If you know how to figure out how to listen to a podcast, you probably have the money to buy a T-shirt if you want it. No, no pressure, anything. So, uh, Matt, what do you want to recommend to people this week? Uh, so I got two, two things. First off, you mentioned South by Southwest, uh, next week, uh, all very exciting. And, uh, just a funny story. Like, so my house in Austin, uh, been uh, going back on the market soon to, to get rented out. And, uh, someone, uh, Hit me up. I'm like, oh, um, we're looking to be in Austin, uh, or we live in your neighborhood, and they were kind of sketchy about that. And and uh, we we're going to be doing some uh, construction on our house from March 9th to the 13th, which happens to be South by Southwest. We would be interested in you know renting your house that week. And I was like, uh, might be okay. And they were like. Um, you know, but then as I started to dig into it, I realized like they're actually not in my neighborhood. And I think what they were doing was like scraping rental properties, trying to find places to sublet out for South by Southwest. So uh, uh, mm. probably dodged a bullet there. Um, That's odd. You know, being renting my house to someone renting my house out while I'm not there sounds sketchy. That's too um, much recursion. But uh, a, a solid pick. Yeah, yeah. A solid pick, though, is... Uh, 
you know, we talked about making money with your editors and uh, your IDEs and stuff. And uh, uh, I'm still old school. I'm using the Emacs. I probably picked this somewhere in the past, but I'm actually getting through the book, uh, Mastering Emacs. And uh, uh, if you haven't, if you're an Emacs user, this is uh, worth uh, worth reading. It's been around for a while, um, but it just kind of goes through the uh, hows and whys of Emacs. And I picked up a few things here and there that I hadn't done before. So, uh, mm. you know, as someone who is uh, on the Emacs path, Definitely read it. Hit, hit us was one of those crazy I, things that, that you've learned that you didn't know before, Matt, right? Oh, so so Emacs has the concept of a kill ring, which, you know, you think copy, paste. Well, Emacs has yank and a kill. And um, I did not know this, that it's a kill ring because everything you've ever cut is in there. And so, like, you can use it to, like, cut, paste, cut your new pasted thing and build up huge paste. As you're, oh. you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's nutty. It's not something you think about normally with cut and paste. Um, is that, is that like, uh, is that like so. one of those LIFO <laughs> things where it just has infinite paste? So you could just sit there and paste everything that yes. you had. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I used to yes. use Emacs. I really liked it. I should, I should try to go back to using that. But, but that would invoke a lesson that I learned this week. Speaking of Annie things is like, if you ever get the notion that there's this new blogging platform out there, and you should definitely move your whole little blogging situation over there. Just, just don't do that because it'll be like, it'll be like one to two <laughs> days later and you'll be like, Oh, all I ended up doing was changing my WordPress theme because that other stuff was bullshit. So just, just stick with yep. what you have. It's, it's a big waste of time. Good old Emacs. Meta key. Well, how about yourself, Brandon? What do you, what do you, what do you have to recommend this week? Um, before I get my recommendation, I, I just, the Emacs conversation, uh, reminded me of what I believe was the geekiest thing I've ever seen on Twitter, which was friend of the show, uh, no SSH JJ talking about that. He figured out how to add some new bindings in Emacs to support the Dvorak keyboard settings. And somehow it like, <laughs> uh, reduced his like travel time on keys by like, I, I don't even know some undetectable rate. Uh, so I, so I guess, when you after you finish the book, I, I guess you somehow have to adopt the Dvorak keyboard and then add no. those bindings. No, um, no, is that not true? Have you, have you already I, I, tried I, this? I'm, I'm not going to Dvorak. Okay, well, I, I don't know. We, we can I, have I, a whole I, podcast where we talk about you know, <sighs> yeah. Dvorak, I need to talk. No. I, we actually we need to have JJ on to explain to me like why anyone would make the switch to Dvorak right. and then on top of that. I'll find that. So, all right. Well, so that well you was, know, I'll, we'll put that in there. At, 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 at some point, either around Thanksgiving or Christmas, we're, <laughs> we're gonna having that podcast. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna need to do some sort of like you know uh, combo planned ahead of time. Software defined interviews. Maybe we do three ones. We could have him or someone else come on and and explain the deal with Dvorak. You know, our friend Charles Lowell. Uh, I don't know if he still does, but he always used Dvorak. And of course, like all things that Charles does, he swears by it. And uh, I'm I'm sure it's wonderful. You know, if you use it, you get no spam. So so that is that is a benefit. So what's your recommendation this week, Brandon? <laughs> uh, my recommendation is uh, really twofold here. One, it's uh, I've been on AT and T, you know, mobile service since I guess the iPhone 3G, and uh, I have uh, held on to my grandfather data plan uh, f- forever. I just would not give it up. But I finally made the switch, and I actually. Uh, 
went to T-Mobile, very simple pricing scheme, very simple uh, unlimited data. And so the, the, the switch was relatively smooth. They send you a SIM card, you call them, you flip it out. I think for most uh, tech people, it'll feel very simple. For my wife, it seemed very confusing, but uh, it, it was fine. It worked out well. But it got me thinking just about um, private equity and the amount of switching costs, because it, it is kind of a pain. It's not hard, but it's a pain. And I thought to myself, so I've been paying you know, roughly $40 extra a month for what amounts to like the same service or even maybe a little less options from AT&T. And, it's, uh, and I don't know how long I would say the service has been comparable five years. And so when you do the math, it's like, well, every in any one month, it never really makes sense to switch. But then you're like, well, 10 years go by and it's like four or $5,000, depending on, you know, mm. what you've done. So my recommendation is to maybe like whatever you're paying for, whatever you're, and I, I try to do this every year is like actually sit down and look at all these subscriptions, cable, TV, internet, and uh, try to be smart about it. And then, uh, and then, yeah, don't be afraid just to switch. It just, it feels like it's hard, but then you do it and you're like, ah, oh, this is actually going to save me a lot of money. So hopefully I can recoup yeah. my costs. Over the next just, five years, you just wrecked AT and T stock price. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. but it does show you what it takes to move. When I remember when I moved to AT and T was when the iPhone came out because, right, it was the only thing that had it. So, uh, yeah, you know, it is. I you know, I would love to see the analysis of someone going back and saying not only how many people move, but just how long they stay after parity is achieved, right? And I think it's got to be huge right it's got to be a huge surplus um so whatever they paid for it i'm sure they i remember everyone saying at&t gave up too much i don't know i, I think we look back now i'm like i bet you they made a lot of money on that deal yeah yeah you know next time we get together we'll have to share some notes because every couple of years i do the at&t versus t-mobile analysis and uh AT&T succeeds in being very confusing about how much it's actually going to cost. And then so I'm always like, well, I'll just do it for a few months and then get the real cost. And then, you know, two years later, I do the analysis again. But it always does seem like <laughs> it, it does seem like it's a better deal. I don't know. It's And, and then, of course, they have internet. Like, let me ask you this, Matt Ray. Now, it, you, you're there living abroad. Would it make sense if you are a T-Mobile customer because they work globally or would that just be bonkers? Uh, I, I think the way they work globally though is like, was it like ten bucks a day or something? Or? No, no, that's what AT and T does. T Mobile, T Mobile, want to go local. T Mobile's no charge to work globally. I mean, or well, it's no extra charge. Whereas AT and T is ten dollars a day. But at, yeah. at least, at least every time I've wanted to be on T Mobile, it was purely because there's no uh, roaming, um, you know, except in like Slovenia yeah, yeah. or something. But uh, every, pretty much everywhere. It, your phone just works. I guess people calling you from Australia okay. would be annoying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so if if you are contemplating moving abroad, my recommendation to you is this: uh, get on Google Fi um, if you can. Um, take your local number, port it over. Google Fi is backed by T-Mobile, and uh, and then when you move abroad, park your phone number in Google Voice and just keep that you know US uh, number. Because yeah. you're still going to need a local number, right? Yes. Yeah, so you're you're not going to use you know you're not going to like go down to uh, you know the the dry cleaner and be like okay first dial plus one for international uh -huh. calling to the U.S. and they're like fuck you I'm not texting you that your laundry's ready. Um, so you'll have to get a local number. Now that makes sense. <laughs> but Google Voice works really nice. Yeah, Google Voice works really well. And uh, and then what you could do, is, yeah. Uh, you're still gonna. You're not gonna keep T-Mobile overseas. Yeah, if oh, that you're makes living sense. There. That makes sense. Well, my recommend. I have Sorry, two two but, rec. But Google. I have two recommendations this week. The first one is uh, is uh, 
weeding. Now, now by that, I mean, you go into your yard and you pick weeds. Not that I would have any problem with weeds, but I, I, I find this kind of an astonishing thing that I've ended up liking because when I was, uh, when I was uh, being raised uh, here in Texas, it was a certain type of uh, torture to be told you need to go outside into the yard and weed. And the smart people would always get up very early before it got hot. And then us kids would have to like pick the weeds up and stuff like that. But it seemed terrible. But, you know, we've had a lot of uh, little little sprays, little mists here. And the ground gets nice and moist. And it's really easy and satisfying just to pick these weeds out of the ground. It's, I weeded our front yard and filled up a whole Costco brown paper bag of stuff. It's just, uh, it's pleasurable. And it's, it's one of these things uh, like mowing uh, the yard where you have a totally legitimate reason to ignore everyone and listen to podcasts while you do it. Uh, and no one can get on your case because you're you're doing air. I'm putting this in air quotes work. So my second one is uh, if you haven't signed up for the Amazon treasure truck, I don't know what they do in your neck of the woods listener, but over here in Austin, th- let me tell you the, the following happened today. I, uh, yeah, I was doing my morning stuff and, and I was catching up with, with my wife, Kim. And immediately she said to me, do not buy what's on the treasure truck today. You do not need it. And I was like, what, what? I, now I got to look. And I went and looked and it was, uh, I think it was two 16 ounce New York strip with the bone steaks for $32, I think. That's which, which is an okay price, but they're also like aged, if I remember. And I have already bought, uh, two, uh, 48 ounces of porterhouse steak for maybe $40. And then before that, I bought some other steaks. So here in Austin, like every other week or so, they have steak on the treasure truck. So you just sign up for it. And, you know, apparently here you get steak. Uh, you know, that last week they had uh, some Bluetooth speaker thing, which is actually priced pretty well, but it's fun. You can just submit to the retail gamification and hijinks, but you get some good products from it. And, you know, they send you a little text messages, stuff like that. So is it like a, it's like Woot or something and they just, Oh, drive around town exactly so yeah that's right say, matt ray yep. matt ray lives in the past we always forget he doesn't even know what we're talking about he's still watching vhs tapes yeah Here, here's here's what happens you get it i assume uh, right that's right i assume you can get an email too but you get a text message and it's like today on the treasure truck you know bone in new york strips 16 ounces a piece two for 32 dollars and uh, and then you go click on it and you buy it through your phone. So you reserve one. And then it's it's going to be at four to five locations around Austin throughout the day. And you go there and they've got this truck. It's kind of like a, a big food truck with all these neon lights on it and everything. Uh, and then they just you they scan your QR code and you get your steak. And there's like the happiest Amazon employee you, you'll ever see running all of this. Um, and they're just in parking lots here and there. <laughs> Mysteriously enough, they don't actually seem to go to Whole Foods to do this. You would think that they would go to Whole Foods. I know that's what I was stuff. thinking. Like, but maybe like that old Whole video Foods stuff, like like that old video says, you know, things are getting too real in the Whole Foods parking lot, so they want to uh, they want to go to other places where it's easier to drive up. But yeah, it's good. You should you should write uh, write a little six page memo to Bezos and tell him that he needs to open it in Sydney or Manly. Or whatever, whatever. <laughs> Just remember, you can put as many pages as you want in the appendix, but keep the core to six pages. Well, as always, this has been Software Defined Talk. If you don't know where you got this podcast from, you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 125 to see the show notes. You can figure out how to get that free t-shirt from Datadog. Uh, find the link to it by just signing up for a dashboard and, get, dashboard and getting a, a lovely t-shirt from them. 
And uh, you can find all the other things that we mentioned, uh, discounts for our t-shirts, newsletters, how to join Slack, all of that wonderful stuff. And uh, we'll see y'all in the Slack channel or we'll see y'all next week or over at our other podcast, Software Defined Interviews. And with that, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>